pray this in your holy name. Amen, 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 amen. You guys can take a seat. Good morning, church. And, well, actually, let's give a hand to this wonderful group of worship leaders. Come on. You know, through July, we're going to be doing more acoustic worship this month, and I know it's going to feel a little bit different. If this is your first time, this is not how it normally is. Normally, we fill out the stage a little bit more, but, but we don't need drums and electric guitar to worship God. We just need our voices. The Bible tells us that even if we don't say anything, the rocks will cry out the glory of God, because it doesn't matter what we do to worship. It just matters that we do do worship. But regardless, this, sum, this Sunday marks the second week of our summer series that we're calling Summertime Stories. And if you missed last week, I know last week was a little bit weird. It was Canada Day, so I apologize to our online audience. I know we didn't have a stream. It's because it's impossible to stream outside. Um, and if you weren't here and you don't really know what's going on, basically this summer we've decided that we're going to be taking some time to dive into some of the wildest, the craziest, the funnest stories. I know funnest isn't a word. My wife just cringed. But I, I always, she always is like, you can't say funnest. It's not a really a word. I'm like, well, do you understand what I mean by it? it must be a word. Anyways, but we're, <laughs> we're, we're diving into some of the, the craziest Old Testament stories about prophets and judges, about people who God used, broken, messed up people who God used in incredible ways. And I know a lot of, for a lot of us, it's been a while since we've been in Sunday school, so we decided, let's just tone it back a little bit, and let's just focus on the narrative of these stories. Because I believe that the stories that we have in the Bible and the stories of what God is doing in each and every one of our lives can actually teach us something. And so rather than just preach on different topics, we were like, let's go at the stories, let's look at the stories, let's see what God did in the lives of these broken people so that we can understand how he might use me in my brokenness, and you in your brokenness, and all of us in our different ways that we're broken so that we can start to learn how God wants to use us, how God wants to work in us and through us and especially that there's nothing you can do that will ever separate you from his love. There's nothing you could do that will ever disqualify you from what he has for you. And so last week we started with the story of Gideon. And, and, and this week we're going to carry that story on a little bit. And, and we only touched on it briefly last week. But, but it was the story about a guy named Gideon who was this, this Israelite kid who lived during a period of history known as the period of the judges. And, and if you missed last week, I'm going to give you a th quick three-minute recap of it, okay? So basically, this is your history lesson. Um, basically, Gideon lived during a period that was known as the judges, period of the judges, which was this period in Israelite history after they'd been enslaved in Egypt and God had set them free through Moses, after they'd wandered through the wilderness for 40 years and Moses had died and everyone had died, and after they had gone into the promised land with Joshua and God had given them this land that he had promised them, he had given them this land that was full of blessing and provision and purpose, this beautiful, amazing land. So God had provided all this thing for them. He'd taken them from slavery into promise. But, 
But after that period, after Joshua and all of those leaders died, started this period that was known as the period of the judges, which really was defined by a very simple pattern of behavior, where Israel would start by following God. If we can throw up the next slide. They'd start by following God. Then they would start to follow other gods. And then they'd get conquered. Because the deal was, God, God said, I will protect you as long as you are willing to serve me and only me, because God is a jealous God. And so they'd follow him for a bit, but then they'd start to follow other gods. And so the natural consequence of their actions was that God would remove his protection from them. They would get conquered by an enemy nation. And then they would beg God for help. God would send a judge. They would serve God for a bit. And the cycle would start all over again. So if you want to understand the book of Judges, this is the book of Judges in a nutshell. And by the time we get to Gideon, who's only Judges chapter 6, there's a lot more chapters after that. This has happened not once, not twice, but four times in Israel's history. And at the, at the context of Gideon is he's living in this day where Israel has been conquered by an enemy nation known as Midian. The Midianite people had come in and they conquered them and they'd taken away all of their stuff. Taken away their food, taken away their clothing, taken away their dignity, they'd taken away their homes. And, and it was so severe to the point that Israel had abandoned their homes and their cities and their farms and everything that they owned and they were hiding out in caves. And it was even more severe than that in that every time they tried to grow food, Midian would come in and be like, that's mine now. It's like, you know, you're having a nice date night and you cook a nice steak dinner and some random person shows up at your house and like, thank you for cooking that for me. That's great. You don't get any. And that was the situation that was going on. And so where we left off last week, God had seen his people struggle and, 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 and the, the Israelites had gone and they started to ask God, please save us. And so God sent an angel to this guy named Gideon who's hiding in his wine press. And he sends an angel and he says, Gideon, I've called you to deliver my people. And Gideon's response was what most of us, including myself, would do if God ever came to me in that way and said, hey, I'm calling you to do something that seems impossible. He's like, ha, 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 God, you're funny. I can't do that. Oh, wait, you're serious? Great. And God's like, I'm, I'm not joking. I will fight with you and I will be with you. You see, from that moment on in Gideon's story, Gideon had a calling and a promise. A calling in that God had now given him this call. He had said, Gideon, you will deliver my people from the Midianites. You will destroy the Midianite armies. And he had a promise, which is God said, you're not gonna do this alone. I'm going to be with you. And then Gideon had to decide in that moment, do I trust God? Do I trust God? And you know, that's a choice that each and every one of us has to make in our daily lives. Because the reality is, whether you know it or not, or you like it or not, God has a purpose for your life. You might not know what it is, you might not know what it looks like. You might know what it is and be like, <laughs> no, absolutely not. That was me for 11 years of my life. But God has a purpose for your life. And the only thing that will prevent you from achieving what God has for you 
is distrust and disobedience. You might not know what the call is. You might not know what the purpose is. God might have just shown you the next step, but if you are faithful and you are obedient and you are willing to trust him, he'll provide for you along the way. See, as I was preparing this message or going through the story of Gideon, I just really felt strongly that God was telling me that he didn't want me to just focus on this story and the narrative of of, of Gideon uh, without diving into the simple truth that following God isn't easy. You know, our word for the year, the word that God gave us for this year, for this church, is deeper. And really that word talks about going deeper in our faith, going deeper with God, going deeper into a place where we trust God where we give up control, where we say, God, whatever you say, I will do it. But the last thing I want to do as your pastor is to lie to you and to tell you, oh, that's going to be easy. Because the reality is that following Jesus isn't easy. It isn't the easiest thing you'll do in your life, but it is the best. And so I want to take us through the story of Gideon this morning to see his faults, to see his flaws, to see his problems, to see the traps that the enemy set in his path to try and destroy him and to try and stop him. So that as we walk in our faith with God, as we walk in the purpose God has for us, we too might learn to recognize what the enemy tries to do to stop us. And so I want to kick us off this morning in the middle of the story. Judges 6, verse 33. And it says in Judges 6, soon afterwards... The armies of Midian, Amalek, and the people of the east formed an alliance against Israel and crossed the Jordan, camping in the valley of Jezreel. What this means, three enemy nations have decided, we don't like Israel. We're going to attack them. And they're not just like thinking about it and pondering it. They are currently in Israel, currently occupying Israel. And it says, then the spirit of the Lord clothed Gideon with power. He blew a ram's horn as a called arms, and the men of the clan of Abazir, his tribe, came to him. He also sent messengers throughout Manasseh, Asherah, uh, Zebulun, and Naphtali, summoning their warriors, all these other tribes of Israel, and all of them responded. And I want to pause here for a moment, because the reality is that, I want, that sometimes it's easy for us to miss a miracle that God is doing. And I want us to understand for a second what the magnitude of the miracle is, because sometimes in your walk of faith, there will come a moment where you doubt that God has called you or you doubt that God is going to do what he promised to do in your life, but you always just have to look back at what he did last. And so in this moment, what's profound is, is, is that Gideon, this random kid, calls to all of these different tribes and says, hey, bring your armies, we're going to war. And they all answer. And I want you to understand something. So Israel at this time, they didn't have a central government. They didn't have a king. They didn't have like a federal government. It's kind of the equivalent of, you know, if, there, if we were all Canada, like all of our provinces and territories were Canada, but we didn't have a federal government. And so Alberta had their own army and Ontario had their own army and Saskatchewan had their own small army. And, but it's equivalent of, of like, we're all friends, but we don't really like each other. We kind of do, but if one has a problem, the other doesn't really care. And what happens in this moment when Gideon calls to these other tribes is the equivalent of some teenager from Quebec calling Jason Kenny and being like, hey, bring your men. We're going to war. And Kenny's like, okay, let's do it. 
Like, it doesn't make sense. It's not something that's common, but the incredible things is that the armies come and God provides. But the next thing that happens in the story, the next thing that Gideon does, the next thing that we see him doing after this army gathers is he doubts. He starts to fall in the first trap that the enemy tries to use to destroy us, which is our doubt. It says, verse 36, Then Gideon said to God, If you are truly going to rescue Israel as you promised, prove it to me in this way. I'll put a wool fleece on the threshing floor tonight. The fleece is wet with dew in the morning, but the ground is dry. Then I'll know that you're going to help me rescue Israel as you promised. And you know, right there is the first trap the enemy will try to use to keep you out of your purpose. Doubt. See, the moment that you're in the exact right place, doing the exact right thing, after God has provided for you time and time again, the enemy will try to come and convince you, ooh, actually, God didn't tell you to do that. God didn't tell you to go to that job. God didn't tell you to move to that city. God didn't tell you to go to that church. God didn't tell you that. And if he did, well, he was wrong. You didn't hear him, right? It, it, it's, it's doubt. But you know, what's crazy to me in the story is everything that Gideon has had to go through to get to this point where now he is doubting God and testing God. See, there's about 17 verses that we skipped between last week and, and this week, and it gets crazy. Like, I'm, I, it, it would be difficult to believe if it weren't in the Bible. But, but basically, how the story of Gideon goes is Gideon is in a wine press. He's kind of hiding out. Angel appears to him. He's like, hey, you're going to deliver Israel. And then Gideon's like, nope, not going to do that. You got the wrong guy. And angel's like, I'm not joking. I'm going to provide for you. And where we left off last week was right there where the angel gave a promise from God that God would fight with him. But the next thing we see Gideon do in that moment is he says, prove it. And so the angel's like, okay, I'll, pr I'll prove it to you. And it was kind of getting late. And in that day and age, hospitality was a really big thing. So the angel's hanging out with Gideon. Gideon's like, okay, I'll, well, uh, you're, you must be hungry. Let me go make you some food. And the angel's like, okay, yeah, go, go make me some food. And I, it doesn't say what the angel made or what the Gideon made for the angel. But I imagine if you think maybe you're talking to an angel, you, you get the good stuff. It's like a nice filet mignon, a good seared salmon with truffles. And I don't know. I've been watching too much Food Network recently. But... But he's like, I, I just imagine he, he doesn't have the $9 bottle of wine from Superstore, but he has the $200 bottle of wine from Wine and Beyond. Like, he, he's, he's going all out, I'd imagine. And he brings out this fantastic meal to the angel, and the angel's like, okay, yeah, set it up on that rock. And I just picture Gideon, he gets out like a tablecloth because, you know, he's fancy. That's just how I picture him. It's not in the Bible. But. And so he sets the table, puts the food down. Angel goes over to it. It's a good spread. Angel takes a staff, touches the food with his staff, which is weird, very weird, but you know, it's an angel. And suddenly the rock bursts into flames, all the food is consumed, and as Gideon is staring like, what is going on? He looks at the angel and poof, the angel's gone. I don't know if that's a normal occurrence in your house, but I've never seen that happen, so. <laughs> and Gideon's response is, oh, that must have been God. That must have been an angel from God. And so Gideon has his proof. 
Because it's something that is not ordinary. I mean, it's really weird that God would just burn your kitchen table down. It's not ordinary. And so he believes. And then the next thing that happens in the story is God comes to Gideon and he speaks to him. He says, hey, go to your friend's house and take their idols, cut them into pieces, burn them while worshiping me. It's like, okay, grab your acoustic guitar. We're going to have a worship session while burning down your friend's shed or whatever. And so he goes at night because he's afraid. That's when I would go. I would go at night too. Um, and he goes and he takes these idols, he cuts them down, he burns them, he throws a worship service. Uh, and, and in the morning when the people are, see it and they're upset, they come after Gideon and God protects Gideon. God uses Gideon's father, Joash, to be like, whoa, 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 guys, I know you want to kill my son, but don't you think that if these false gods that Gideon destroyed their idols of were real, that they would avenge them? And so the people are like, okay, I guess you're right. And, and so God provides. He protects them. And then, you know, the army of Midian comes in to destroy Israel, and again God provides. He gives Gideon the strength to, to call together an army when it should have been impossible, but God does it. And so we see this pattern Gideon doubts, God proves himself. Gideon's obedient, God protects him. Gideon's obedient, God protects him. And now in this moment, still he doubts. But you know, I think if we're honest, the reality is that when we're following God, doubt is normal. It's normal to doubt. It's normal to question. It's normal to wonder have I heard right from God when God is asking you to do something that seems impossible? When you're walking in your purpose, it's normal to doubt. And so Gideon, he doubts. And really, I think what happens in this moment is, is that Gideon, up to this point, he's been trusting God in the small things. And you know, it's easy to trust God in the small things because if God fails me in the small things, well, I got it myself. But in this moment, Gideon's now surrounded by an army. The Bible tells us it was 32,000 men. So Gideon's surrounded by this army. There's an enemy army there, and, and it's all become real. You know, it's easy to trust God when you're just destroying idols. It's easy to trust God when you're just preparing dinner. It's easy to trust God when you're just sending a text message to another tribe to be like, hey, will you maybe send some troops to me? But, but when you have the men... When you have 32,000 people relying on you to have accurately heard from God, it's easy to doubt. And so Gideon begins to doubt. You know, it's easy to pray and to ask God, hey God, will you give us a baby? And then when he does, be like, oh my goodness, what is, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to be a parent. That's not a, Kim's not pregnant. Um, but, but that's an actual thought in my head, thinking about like potentially having kids in the future is like, oh my goodness, like I'm basically a kid myself. I don't know what to do. It's easy to pray for something and when God provides to doubt. It's easy to ask God for a new job. And then once he gives it to you and he gets you out of that bad old job, it's easy to be like, oh my goodness, did I make the right decision? Is this the right thing? Should I, should I have left? Like, you get graduation goggles and you're like, oh, I was so much better at that old place. And God's like, you were being abused at that old place. I brought you somewhere better, but it's easy to doubt. It's easy when you're praying 
for a family member who's sick to, to pray for them to get well. But in the midst of waiting for healing to come and watching them get worse, it's easy to doubt. Often it's easy to trust God with the small things because they're not dangerous, but when the rubber hits the road and we have to trust God for something that seems impossible, it's normal. It's normal to feel anxious, to feel worried and and to doubt. But here's the thing, when, when God calls you to do something, he's calling you to trust him. Because if God calls you to do something, he's not going to leave you high and dry in the middle of nowhere with an army of 32,000 people to just all die. He's not going to abandon you in the middle of what he's called you to do. He's going to provide for you even when you doubt. And, and so Gideon doubts. And so he puts this test before the Lord and he says, God, if I'm hearing you properly, make this fleece, it was kind of like a carpet or like a piece of fur or whatever um, from a sheep. It was, make this fleece wet and the ground dry. And that was a normal circumstance. See, in that culture, it'd be cold at night, the dew would gather on the ground, on the stone of the threshing floor and on the fleece, and then in the morning the sun would rise and the dew would evaporate off the stone, but it would take a little bit longer to come off the fleece. And so that was a normal occurrence, and Gideon's like, hey, prove yourself in something that normally happens. And so God does it. And then the next night, Gideon's like, okay, you proved yourself in the normal, now I want you to prove yourself in the what's not normal. Make the floor wet, but the fleece dry. That's not possible. That's not natural. That's extraordinary. That's something that only God can do. And, and God does it, and he proves himself to Gideon. But Gideon is saying to him, prove yourself to me. I have so much doubt. Prove to me that you are God, that you are real, and that you are speaking to me. You know, if you're being honest, I wonder how many of us have ever asked God that question. I know I have. Numerous times. Numerous times in my life, I've wondered, have I heard God wrong? Am I doing the wrong thing? Am I in the wrong career? Am I doing the wrong, wrong thing? Because, you know, God called me at the age of seven in a dream to be a pastor, and that's a whole crazy story. I'll tell it another time. But but he, at the age of seven, he called me to be a pastor, and I, well, I'll, I'll just say that uh, over the years, I didn't really want to be a pastor. And so I was like, did I hear God wrong? And through high school, when it's not popular to be Christian, it's like, I must have heard God wrong. I'd much rather be like a lawyer or something, you know? And, and in the many years since that initial dream, going through high school, going through Bible college, working here at the church, there have been times when life has gotten really difficult and really stressful where I've doubted. I've doubted what God has called me to, that I've doubted and thought, am I in the wrong place? That I've doubted the call God has put me in, in my life and wondered maybe I misheard God. And it's crazy because I know God put me in this church for a reason. He put me in this position for a reason. I know what God has called me to do, but there are moments, I'm just being real, there are moments when life gets hard and when just all kinds of crazy things are going on, there are moments where it's easy for me to doubt. 
You know, I haven't recently gotten to the point of saying, God, prove it to me. Not because I haven't wanted to, but because I know too much Bible to do that now. But I've done that in the past. Because the reality is sometimes you can be in the exact right place doing the exact right thing that God has called you to do and still doubt. Because the business didn't grow as you expected. The marriage wasn't as easy as you thought it would be. The kids weren't as perfect as you pictured. It's easy to imagine the perfect life, but it's really hard to live the perfect life. And because life has gotten real and life has gotten difficult and you're facing something that seems impossible, it's easy to doubt and to want to give up and to want to disobey God. And and Gideon doubts. And so he throws down the fleece. And what's crazy about what he's doing in this moment is he is, what he's doing in this moment is a direct violation of God's law. Deuteronomy 6, God says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. What is Gideon doing? He's putting the Lord his God to the test. And not, not just like simply, he's, he's literally putting God in a box and saying, God, give me a yes or no answer. That's all I want. I don't want you to say anything else. I just want a yes or no answer in a question that is more than yes or no. But what's crazy in this moment is that God answers. Which tells me that God is willing to work with us even when we doubt. Because you see, it doesn't matter how much you might struggle with doubt or how much you might want to give up or how much it might seem impossible and you might just be like, I'm done. If you're still standing and you're still willing to be obedient, God's not done with you yet. And all God is asking is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? Will you trust me more than your doubts? Will you trust me more than your fears? Will you trust me? And then Gideon gets a sign, and finally he's like, okay, let's do this. We're going to go defeat the Midianite army. And I imagine he goes out and he gathers, goes to the men. He's like, all right, men, get your weapons. We're going to war. And God's like, whoa, 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 Gideon, you're moving a little too fast. Chapter 7, verse 2. Gideon, you have too many warriors with you. This is God speaking. Thank you, God. If I let all of you fight the Midianites, the Israelites will boast to me that they've saved themselves by their own strength. Therefore, I tell the people, whoever is timid or afraid, may I leave this mountain and go home. So 22,000 men went home. And Gideon was left with 10,000. God, didn't you send that army to me? I couldn't have gathered that army, God. You sent 32,000 men. You could have just sent 10,000. Why are you shrinking my army? Like, God, I don't know if you're maybe not up to date on the latest battle tactics. I'll, um, if you send me your P.O. box, I'll send you the, the Art of War, the Sun Tzu. Maybe it'll teach you a thing or two about battle tactics. But basically, God, more men, easier fight. And God's like, cool. Will you trust me? And the army shrinks by 22,000 men. But, but then Gideon's like, okay, okay. We're down to 10,000. I still trust God. Let's do this. And God's like, whoa, 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 whoa. By the way, your army's still too big. Verse 4, there are still too many. 
bring them down to the spring, and I will test them to determine who will go with you and who will not. When Gideon took his war- warriors down to the water, the Lord told him to divide them into two groups. One group put all those who cup, their, cup water in their hands and lap it up like or lap it up with their tongues like a dog. I've never seen somebody drink water that way. In the other group, put all those who kneel down and drink with their mouths in the stream. Also, I've never seen somebody drink like that. Very interesting situation. And only 300 of them drank with their hands. All the others got down on their knees and drank with their mouths in the stream. So the Lord told Gideon, with these 300, I will rescue you and give you victory over the Midianites. Send these others home. Let's recap here for a second. Okay, so Gideon... Starts out in this wine press. He's hiding. He's dealing with the food. He's trying to process the grain, process the harvest so his family will have food. God shows up and says, I've called you to deliver your, my people. And Gideon's like, no. And God's like, yes. And Gideon's like, prove it. And so God proves it. And then the next thing, Gideon's a little bit faithful, moves along, and God's like, okay, go destroy those idols. And so Gideon goes at night, and he destroys those idols, and then God protects them. Next thing, enemy comes in, tries to to destroy Israel again, and Gideon calls for an army, and an army comes. It's a blessing from God. It's really good. And then last, we find Gideon, he doubts God a little bit, and God proves himself to him, and Gideon's finally in a place to defeat the Midianite army, and God's like, you got too many men. Like, God, do you not realize that by shrinking his army, you're making him less likely to obey you? Like, to me, 32,000 men, that sounds great. That sounds like a massive army. But 300? I'm going to be double-checking if God's actually speaking to me. It's like, why, God? Why? Well, it's because often in order to deal with our doubt, God will make us face impossible circumstances to demonstrate that it's not about what we lack. It's about who we have on our side. If God is for me, who can stand against me? And it doesn't give us a list of who. It just said, who? Like, it's a question. Who possibly could stand against me when God is for me? So in order to deal with our doubt, God will often make, put us into situations where we have to trust him fully because, Gideon, you can't conquer the army with 300 men on your own. So are you willing to trust God? But you know, in this moment, God is also dealing with the second big trap that we have to face when we're being obedient to God. You see, we have before you fight the battle, we have the first trap, which is doubt. But the second trap that God's trying to address right now in this this passage is, is the trap that comes after the battle. That comes after you accomplish what God has called you to accomplish, the trap that tries to prevent you from ever being used by God again, and that's pride. And God says, you have too many men. If you fight with this army, you'll think you did it yourself, so I need to shrink your army. See, often in order to deal with our pride, God will make us face impossible circumstances to demonstrate it's not about your skill. But again, it's about who you have on your side. See, because doubt will try to keep you from accomplishing what God has for you. But pride after the fact will try to lie to you and convince you that God didn't do that. It was your skill. It's because you're so good as a parent. It's because you're so good at building a business. It's because you're such a great leader that all of these good things happen to you. It, it, it's God, God might have told you to do it, but, but really it's you. And so 
in this moment, God is trying to teach us, it's not about you. It's not about the size of your army. It's about me. It's about God. Will you trust him? Will you trust him? And, and the story goes that Gideon takes his 300 men and he gives them trumpets and torches that are lit in jars so, you know, hide the light. And then he tells them, okay, here's the strategy. We're going to go at night when the enemy is asleep. We're going to surround their camp. And when you hear me blow my trumpet, you will blow your trumpets and you break the jars and you hold up your torches and then you shout for the Lord and for Gideon. Sounds like a stupid plan. But they go and they do it and the Midianites wake up to this cacophony of trumpets and they freak out and they turn their swords on one another and they all flee and the day is won. And, and you know, it might seem like a silly strategy, but this is a bit of a rabbit trail, but, but the, there's actually a genius to the strategy. So you see, in that day and age, you would put in your army, say you had an army of a thousand men, you would put the worst soldiers, the least important soldiers, to hold torches and to blow trumpets. Because you want as many men as possible to be fighting. So you'd put maybe like 10 people if you had an army of 1,000. You'd put maybe 1% of them in a, in a massive army to do this because it was the least important role. And so when the Midianites wake up, and they see all around them 300 torches and hear 300 trumpets, what must have gone through their mind is, oh my goodness, Gideon's army must be insanely huge. Gideon must have an army of 30,000 if he has that many people on torches and trumpets. And so they freak out and they run and God provides for him. Forever proving that your doubt doesn't limit your potential. The only thing that limits your potential is your obedience. God is saying, will you trust me? Will you trust me with the 300? Will you trust me? But you know, this is where Gideon's story gets tragic. This is where Gideon's story and the whole pride thing really comes in. And in Judges 8, verse 22, it says, Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Be our ruler. You and your son and your grandson will be our rulers, for you've rescued us from Midian. But Gideon replied, I will not rule over you, nor will my son. The Lord will rule over you. This is the good response. This is what he's supposed to say. However, I do have one request that each of you give me an earring from the plunder you collected from your fallen enemies. Gladly, they replied. And so they gathered these up, and it says the weight of the gold earrings was 43 pounds, not including the royal ornaments and the pendants and the purple clothing worn by the kings of Midian or the chains around the necks of their camels. And Gideon made a sacred ephod from the gold and put it in Oprah, his hometown. And the, the ephod was this priestly garment that only the high priest was supposed to wear, that only one person in all of Israel was supposed to have, and Gideon makes his own. He makes his own idol and, and sets it up in his hometown, and soon all the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping it, and it became a trap for Gideon and his family. Then Gideon, son of Joash, returned home. He had 70 sons born to him, busy guy, for he had many wives, he also had a concubine. I don't even know how you'd remember the names of 70 sons. Just, I struggle with 50 people. I'm just like, oh my goodness, I can't remember people's names. Like how, anyways, that doesn't include the daughters either. The concubine in Sesham, who gave birth to a son whom he named Abimelech, 
As soon as Gideon died, the Israelites prostituted themselves by worshiping the images of Baal, and they turned back to their idols. You see, this passage, it starts with Israel, and after the heat of the battle, they come to Gideon, and they're like, hey, be our king. You did a great job. Be our king. Gideon, he rightfully says, no, 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 no. God will be your king. But then he takes the kingly portion of the plunder. He takes the king's robes from the Midianites. He establishes a national cult center in his hometown. Essentially, the the ephod would be one of those garments that the priest would use to determine God's will. And so he's essentially saying, no, 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 you don't need to go to Jerusalem for that. You can come here. And Israel comes to him instead. It's something he controls. And he establishes a large harem, fathers many, many children, one of whom he names Abimelech, which in Hebrew means my father is the king. So he's like, no, I won't be your king. But actually... Everything he does from that point on is acting as a king. And suddenly, in this moment, he swings from doubting God before the battle to struggling with pride after. And it takes him out. It destroys his family. It, it ruins what, everything he did in Israel. And by the time he dies, Israel is in a worse place than it was before because of his pride. This is the saddest part of the story, that because of Gideon's pride, he did what God called him to do. He trusted God. He doubted a little bit, but he trusted God regardless, and he did what God told him to do. He did, he, God accomplished what only God could do through Gideon. But then it flips, and in his pride, he sets himself up as if he is king, and he causes the people to go astray and to turn back to idols. See, there are two things. There are a lot more things, but there are two things in the story that we see that will try to keep you out of the purpose that God has for your life. The first is doubt before the accomplishment, and the second is pride after the accomplishment. Doubt before God comes through, and pride after God comes through. Because doubt will try to convince you beforehand that you're not good enough to do it, that God didn't speak that to you. But afterwards, pride will try to convince you that, no, 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 this was all you. This was all you. God didn't play a role. Look at what you accomplished. Look at the business you built. Look how good you are. God didn't play a role in this. It was all you. And so we have to fight. When we're in the midst of the battle, we have to fight against the doubt to trust God no matter how bleak it looks. And afterwards, we have to fight against the pride to give God all the glory. But you know, if, that, if I'm being honest, that's easier said than done. Because the reality is, I know in my life, and I'm sure this is reflective of other people in this room, doubt and pride are two things that I'm constantly struggling with. So you see, God has called me to do incredible things, and in moments, he's called me to trust him in ways that I, I didn't seem possible. And so I've had to trust God in moments where he told me, hey, go pray for that person, and I'm going to heal them. So I went and prayed for them. I had to trust him in moments before me and my wife were married when she was struggling with depression. I had to trust him when he told me, I, I've got this. I've got this. I'll make a way through this. I had to trust him. I had to trust him in taking this job because this is nerve-wracking. This is 
scary. This is crazy to think about, but I had to trust God. But the problem is, the flip side is as soon as I trust God and saw, trusted God and saw God move through me, immediately pride tried to come in. Oh, you saw that person healed? Good job. Give yourself a pat on the back. Yay. Go you. I'm like, no, no, it wasn't me. It was God. As soon as God dealt with my wife's depression, I had to turn, I had, I had to trust God because immediately pride was like, oh, good job. You know how to deal with depression now. No, I don't. I don't have a clue what I'm doing with that. It was all God. In this role, I, I, I've had to continually go back to God and say, God, thank you. You alone are in charge. You alone are here. I trust you, and I give you all the glory. You know, I started in this, this church as a youth pastor, I don't know how many years ago, like seven, six, seven, eight years ago, something like that. And over the time of running our youth ministry, we saw youth grow from about 20 people to about 60 people. And it was just, it was a blessing of God, but if I'm honest, pride got into my heart and was like, oh, look how good of a leader you are. And then COVID came. And in COVID, God taught me very, very quickly, I built this ministry, I can take it away. I was like, okay. Because we have to deal with pride. It's not about your skills. It's not about your talents. It's not about who you are. It's about how God wants to use you, how God wants to work through you, what God has for your life that will change the world. See, the message of Gideon is twofold. First, it's not about your doubts, but your willingness to trust God. And second, it's not about your pride or your abilities, but it's about God working through you. And the question with Gideon, with the story of Gideon, really comes down to, do you trust God? Before the battle, do you trust God? And after the battle, will you give him glory? Because of what he did. I want to close with one last verse from Proverbs 29. It says this, verse 23, Lift yourself up with pride, and you will soon be brought low. But a meek and humble spirit will add to your honor, which is to say, if you are proud, God will humble you. And you're probably not going to enjoy that. If you are proud... God will stand against you. It says that God opposes the proud. But if you're humble, God will lift you up and he will honor you. And then verse 25, it says, fear and intimidation is a trap that holds you back. But when you place your confidence in the Lord, you will be seated in high places. Which is to say, if you are too afraid and doubt God and allow that doubt to affect you and to stop you, you will get stuck. You'll get stuck in places that you don't want to be, doing things you don't want to do because God has called you to do something and you haven't had the faith to step forward into it. But when you trust in God, He will reward you. So the question that I want to leave you with is simply this. How do you want to live? How do you want to live? Do you want to live in faith? Or in doubt? Or in pride? So I'll promise you, 
Doubt and pride are much easier to live. But only one of those will ever bring you to the place that God needs you to be in order to accomplish what he wants to use you to accomplish in this world. Only one of those will bring you to a place where you can actually make a difference in the world, where you can actually show Jesus' love in the world, where you can actually show, make a difference in a world that shows so much hatred and just shine a light of love to those who are brokenhearted. The question is, how do you want to live? In pride and doubt or in faith? And that's not to say that walking in faith is easy, but but it's worthwhile. And if you will trust God in the midst of your doubt and praise God after you come through and just rely on God continually no matter what, he's got something incredible that he wants to do in your life and through your life. That will change, maybe not the whole world, but the world of the people around you. Really, it's up to you. Let's stand together and let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you use broken and messed up people like me. I thank you that There's nothing I can do that can disqualify me from your love, and there's nothing I can do that can disqualify me from being used by you, God. That you use the most broken and messed up people to change the world. And God, I thank you that in the midst of our doubt, you don't abandon us. In the midst of our pride, you don't leave us be, but you're constantly pursuing us. So, Father God, I just pray over myself and each and every person who can hear my voice, Lord. Let us walk in faith. That no matter what comes our way, we are relying on you and trusting you, even when it seems impossible, even when the army seems too big, even when we don't know what to do, that we will trust in you. And God, help us, humble us, Help us to remember after the fact, after you work miracles in our life, not to forget them. But even after you come through in incredible ways, that we will continue to trust you and to rely on you and to walk in faith and in purpose. God, I pray for anyone in this room who is uncertain of what you are calling them to, Lord. I pray that you will open their eyes and open their ears to see and to hear that next step that you have for them. If anyone doubts the calling you've placed on their life, God, I pray that you will reveal to yourself to them again. Confirm that calling, God. For anyone who's struggling with taking that next step, God, with trusting you when it's hard, I just pray that you will surround us with your love. Let us see your glory and your power that even when it seems impossible, we will continue to trust you. I pray this in your